Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. No, you're not hearing this at uh, 1.5 speed on your podcast. I'm just talking quickly because it's that kind of morning. It's a little on the early side. I'm already hyper-caffeinated, and that's because I have essentially uh, two days of work to do, and I only have a half day to do it in because today is the annual tradition um, among me and my um, once reprobate, now upstanding middle-aged uh, bourgeois buddies uh, called Holidays, um, H-O-L-I-D-A-Z-E. And we've been, the core group, we're um, a bunch of guys, I guess I could I could name them, I don't want to sound like Matt Damon pretending to be Brett Kavanaugh on the SNL skit and giving shout-outs to everybody, but um, the core guys were um, these guys I worked with when I was an RA and then a television producer and then around the, um, American Enterprise Institute, uh, starting, dear God, um, almost 30 years ago. And, um, and when we all kind of went our separate, started to go our separate ways at the end of the nineties, beginning of the two thousands, we agreed and then we, you know, we were all starting to have kids. We got married. Actually, we got married. Then we had kids. We tried to do it in the success sequence order. Um, we realized how hard it was to spontaneously go out, you know, which we used to do like three or four nights a week and get into all sorts of trouble. So we started putting things on the calendar. And the first thing we put on the calendar was uh, an annual uh, Christmas time get together where we would have an inordinately boozy lunch and a big piece of meat or something. And, um, and it's really kind of, I mean, I wish there was some sort of videographer for it because, you know, when we first started doing it, we would spill out of the, I don't know, the palm or wherever we first started doing it. Um, some of these places don't even exist anymore. And then we would head out. I was Morgan and we would play pool. And I, there are rumors that it's one or two years. I'm not saying I was involved. Uh, there were strip clubs involved and just just lots of instances of decision trees going awry and getting home at four in the morning and, you know, some people having their wives tell them that they have to sleep on the couch because they stink and, and they're snoring and all these kinds of things. And um, I remember one year, uh, my friend Todd, uh, people who know me, will know, well, some of the people who know me will know who I'm referring to, but I don't know if he wants to be outed for this. Uh, I remember him texting us the next morning as we were out to like four saying, um, um, 
my kids won't get off, keep jumping up and down on me, and I can't feel my right arm. Um, anyway, in the last five, 10 years, we basically, you know, let the lunch go along to like three, and then we head home because we're becoming boring old men, and we'll see if that, that changes. But uh, anyway, it's a command performance. I got to go. I got to be there. And, um, and it's not like I'm super productive um, after the day drinking begins. And as much as I joke about how you can't say you've been drinking all day unless you start in the morning, I'm really not a big day drinker. Um, I've never really understood how my parents' generation could, you know, go off to lunch on a Tuesday, have a martini or two and some wine and a big old steak and then head back to the office and go back to work because I would just need to curl up in a ball and go to sleep or watch, you know, um, reruns of Roadhouse or something like that. So uh, where to begin? You can read your morning dispatch and find out about uh, how, you know, it looks like Build Back Better is not going to happen, um, at least not in 2021. And um, I can't say I'm super surprised. I never went out on a limb and made predictions about this. Uh, my friends over at NR would repeat on the editor's podcast. A bunch of them would repeatedly say it's going to pass. It's going to pass. Mansion's going to cave or, um, you know, or Bernie's going to cave or whatever, but that eventually they'll, the Democrats will get it. And people were very, very, very cross at Republicans who crossed the aisle to save the, the traditional infrastructure thing. And, um, and I got to give credit to that niche podcast over at commentary. A bunch of those guys were pretty adamant that it, um, wasn't going to pass. Um, I was always, I always was sort of in one of these kind of like, I think both sides make plausible arguments. And if, if one group is saying it makes a very plausible case for X and another group is saying makes a very plausible case for not X, uh, the better course of action is to simply be, um, agnostic about it and not, you know, make a prediction one way or the other. And just so you know, in Washington, that's what most journalists, where most journalists sort of come down, which is why, you know, and I mean, this is an old, old sort of joke in, in DC punditry, but like when you see people say, oh, there's a 60% chance this is going to happen. It's very, you know, Brian Fantana in the sense that like, it's totally non-falsifiable no one's going to go back and said, you said it was a 60% chance, or you said it was a 40% chance or whatever. Right. And because it's like, you know, 60% of the time it's right every time. Um, it's just a perfect way to hedge, but sound like you've made some sort of real serious analysis and calculation about the probabilities of some political development. When in reality, you know, you're just, I'm not saying this is like intellectually dishonest or something like that, unless you, say it with really serious you know passion and conviction you know it's like mark my words this has a 60 percent chance of passing um you know but if you just say i don't know i put it around 60 percent. there's nothing intellectually dishonest or anything or anything about it but it's basically it's another it's it's another way for people saying i don't know it could go either way and i'm leaning one way and it, it's an utterly meaningless kind of prediction and that's sort of where I was on this. And uh, I got to say, I'm very happy that it's not passing. I'm also, uh, you know, I'll, I'll await my, my inflation brain trusts uh, response. But 
I think the Fed move uh, to say they're going to start um, easing up, um, uh, I guess easing up is the wrong nomenclature. Uh, they're going to start pushing up interest rates a bit. Um, that sounds right to me, even though I am persuaded that the inflation we have is mostly driven by, um, you know, the supply issues rather than the, the excess liquidity stuff. I'm not saying the excess liquidity is, isn't a problem or anything like that and soaking it up with some high interest, higher interest rates sounds like a pretty good idea to me. Um, but I just think having essentially zero interest rate, you know, is unsustainable in the long run and so for me it's more of a it's just a kind of return to normal kind of thing and um and i've always thought that like it's a really bad thing culturally to tell people that there's really no meaningful return on investment and saving you know when i was a kid it was a big deal people you know i had my little bank passbook and i had to go in the bank and i made my little deposits and all that kind of stuff and and the you know, the lesson you learn about compound interest was really, really important. And you felt like you were um, doing the right thing just by saving money, you, not just doing the right thing, but that you were actually being smart in terms of, you know, it was a, an investment unto itself just to put your money in a savings account because the interest rate was enough that you felt it was, you know, beating inflation and you were actually making money from it in the long term. And I think culturally, there's something very helpful to teach, you know, there's sort of a teaching effect when you have a rate of return on savings that is, um, that encourages savings as a good in and of itself. Um, I get, totally get, I'm in the stock market. I get why people want to, you know, encourage people to put their stuff into 401ks and mutual funds and, and all that. And, you, and people should consult your financial advisor. Um, but I just think that, like for old people, for retirees, um, having slightly higher interest rates, not crazy high interest rates, but, um, is a good thing. You know, people who, um, you know, don't want the risk of being in the stock market. They want to buy some bonds. They want to get a return. Um, and I think we've spent the last 15 years or so screwing a lot of people who used to rely on that kind of thing. And, um, and so I, anyway, I think it's a good thing, but I am open on things like interest rates and all that, I am always open to correction. And the amazing thing is so many people are eager to correct me. So, um, and, and they do it from all the different directions. So that's all fine. Um, so where to go now? Um, so I, I, I try to avoid talking about what I'm going to write about in the G file. Um, because then, you know, I don't know if it bothers many people, but the people it does bother, I hear from, and they're like, Hey, I, you know, I read this. I don't want to hear you repeat the same thing here, especially when they're sort of back to back. And I get it. It makes some sense. Um, but again, today is kind of special. Um, and so I don't know. I, I, the thing I'm thinking about writing about, and I gotta, you know, do it fast. And I have some stuff from my book that, you know, uh, I won't be starting necessarily at zero, but, um, um, I should say from my books, Apocrypha, because a lot of that stuff doesn't get in there, but now I am just saying words that no one cares about. Um, been thinking a lot about privilege, you know, um, white privilege, cis heteronormative privilege. Um, and, um, 
and the arguments and policies that kind of flow from that kind of talk. And I, I, I should say, you know, I think there is such a thing as white privilege. I mean, let me put it this way. Um, yesterday, I had a really great conversation with uh, my friend and colleague, Sally Sattel, um, a very prominent, accomplished and brave psychiatrist um, and scholar. And, you know, she has written a bunch of really great stuff about how the sort of the woke um, anti-racist uh, ideology stuff is poisoning big chunks of the sort of psychiatric, therapeutic, psychological professions. I'm not going to get all exact terminology right and all that. Um, and people are, you know, and, 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 and people in, who are offering mental counseling and therapy are being encouraged culturally, professionally, institutionally, politically, um, to bend their diagnostic craft to the ideological agendas of, of this anti-racist stuff. And, you know, Sally in her writing, and also I think in the podcast, we were pretty clear that like, like it is perfectly legitimate to talk about the legacy of slavery, the legacy of Jim Crow, the role of racism in society. Um, they exist. They're real. They're, they're, um, perfectly valid things to be concerned about. But they are not the singular, sole, monocausal explanation of everything that goes wrong for black people and everything that's not right about white people. There's just other stuff going on, you know? And it's like I keep, you know, invoking that quote, I can never remember who said it about supply-side economics, that there's nothing wrong with supply-side economics that can't be fixed by dividing by 10. Um, that's sort of my attitude towards a lot of the anti-racism, structural racism, systemic racism, 1619 project stuff. There's a lot of good stuff in the 1619 project, even though I think there's a lot of intellectual dishonesty and bad scholarship and special pleading and partisanship and, and intellectual dishonesty that went into that thing. Um, but, uh, you know, and this is one of my just huge gripes, the, which I've talked about a bunch, so I won't get going the weeds on, but the way sort of white liberals and 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 other sort of progressives on TV, when they are when they denounce conservative pushback on things like critical race theory or the sixteen nineteen project, is their standard argument or talking point is to say, oh, conservatives don't want to talk about, don't want to teach slavery, don't want to talk about racism, um, as if. Until in the last 18 months with the rise of the, this critical race theory and anti-racism stuff and Ibram Kendi and all of that and this new push to do all this stuff, as if like this stuff hasn't been taught and discussed for decades. I mean, decades. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's retconning. It's airbrushing out, you know, the history and it's pretending that like up and, and Joy Reid has said stuff like this where, you know, like, like, you know, up until five minutes ago. Um, American history and, and social studies classes told this entirely whitewashed history of America where, where, you know, white America did nothing bad to black people and slavery was, you know, no big deal. And Jim Crow was no big deal. And what happened to native Americans was no big deal. And it's just nonsense. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, that stuff has been taught for decades. Um, I guarantee you, you can go back and find, you know, thoughtful essays from serious non sort of crazy right wingers about how that stuff was being taught to the 
too much and to the exclusion of other important things 30 years ago. Um, anyway, I mean, because I, mean, I was, I was there for a lot of these arguments, the, you know, the, um, the arguments about, you know, the, the core curriculum and the national endowment for humanities arguments about Bill Bennett and all this, I mean, this stuff is, has been a central part of American life and conversation for a very, very long time. So anyway, uh, I, I think there is something called white privilege. I think that, you know, I was poking around, um, very early this morning and there's this, you know, I saying, you know, I, I, I Googled examples of you know examples of white privilege and you find these lists and some of the lists you know are overwrought and hyperbolic and you know kind of uh incredibly tendentious and if i wanted to take out my red pen i could go through it you know go through them and say this is overstated and this is overstated this is dishonest and whatever but the core point that a core points that a lot of them make are totally fair. You know, white people on average, excluding all other things being equal, excluding all sorts of caveats, white people on average have a certain expectation to deal better with police than, you know, black people, especially young black men. And again, there are caveats to be made about all of that, but there's a point there as well. Also the way we talk about American history, you know, there's a certain kind of white privilege to it in the sense that, you know, most of the Ameri most of the great events, significant events, that shaped the course of America were, you know, conducted by white people. And this is not to say that, you know, blacks and Hispanics and Asian Americans and all the rest didn't have important roles that maybe have been too minimized and all that. But at the same time, it's just simply true. And that, you know, I mean, you can't have it both ways. You can't be mad at someone who says that white people dominated American history and then complain that white people dominated American history. So yeah, there's a certain amount of privilege if you're white about being talking about American history as if it's your history. Now, my, one of my biggest caveats about all of this is that I hate the idea of people sort of um, getting deeply invested in the category of white and seeing themselves as white. White is not a specific culture, really. Do you want to talk about Western civilization? Sure, I'm, I'm down with that. Um, but there, you know, there are a lot of hues um, and, and, and variations and melanin content in Western civilization. Um, white is a total abstraction. And, you know, the, I, to say that there's some sort of fundamental white solidarity and, um, and white identity is to basically, to basically make your, render yourself incapable of understanding about 3000 years of European history where everybody was killing each other for reasons that had nothing to do with, you know, whiteness versus some otherness. Um, and, uh, but anyway, I think there are plausible defensible propositions that are way too exaggerated about what constitutes, you know, white privilege and that kind of thing. Um, my problem is, is that there are just all sorts of other kinds of privilege in this society. And then, any society, you know, one of the things I'm sort of fascinated by are sumptuary laws. And, um, for those you don't know, a sumptuary law was basically just a law that dictated, you know, what kind of clothes you could wear, um, what kind of food you could eat. Um, all, basically almost all of the, um, the signifiers of your social station, um, they were regulated and, and, and not just in Europe but in ancient Rome and, and, you know, for centuries in China and Japan, you know, I, I think the Aztecs, I'll look it up, but the Aztecs, um, only the aristocratic classes or a certain segments of the elite could drink chocolate, even though, you know, like 
chocolate was kind of the currency of the Aztec civilization. Um, you know, only the king and his royal cohort could wear purple. Only Caesar could wear purple. Um, I think in, you know, in Islamic world, um, Christians had to wear gray and couldn't ride horses. I mean, there are just all of these kinds of things. And I'm using sumptuary laws somewhat as an exact, as a, a, a more capacious term than it's sometimes used in the literature, but it, this is basically right. And, um, and, you know, starting with the enlightenment, yay enlightenment, um, sumptuary laws and other sort of notions of prerogative and privilege start being removed from the, uh, from the formal laws, you know, and in North America, this happened really fast. And of course, lamentably one of the last holdovers of that old world way of thinking, um, specifically slavery and Jim Crow, uh, lasted way, way too long in, in North America, but we got rid of titles of nobility. We got rid of, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, uh, formal regulations that kept people on their rung of the social ladder. And I, I may have talked about this on here before, but you know, in my book, I have this stuff from, uh, Daniel Borston, where he talks about how, when Europeans, uh, would visit the United States, they were so annoyed, um, and confused, um, because you couldn't tell by what people were wearing, what their social rank and status was. You know, still into the 1800s, you know, in Europe, milkmaids wore milkmaid clothes and, 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 you know, uh, masons wore masonry clothes and that kind of thing. You just knew what people did and where, where people belong by how they dressed in America. You couldn't tell. And, um, I think that's sort of a wonderful egalitarian thing, but just because you get rid of, um, those formal laws doesn't mean that the natural human instinct that drove a lot of those um, laws disappears too. And so, you know, in all sorts of ways, we have our own little, and I talk about this a lot on here, you know, our little shibboleths, our little sort of cultural tells and signifiers that communicate our status and all the rest. And, you know, one of my, Rob Long was the first guy to say this to me, and I think he's right. I've mentioned it a few times here that I think one of the reasons why there's a certain elite turn against Elon Musk is that Elon Musk um, stopped making electric cars that were basically massive elite virtue signals on wheels and started to try to make it a mass produced middle-class thing that lost its, um, you know, its virtue signaling that made these cars kind of lose their virtue signaling power. Um, um, and I, you know, and I think this is a total aside and I hope I can remember to get back to the point I wanted to make, but, um, you guys know what a Veblen good is, right? A Veblen good comes from Thorsten Veblen and it's basically, I don't know if he ever called them Veblen goods. That would be really, really arrogant. Um, it'd be like Einstein calling something an Einstein particle, but a Veblen good in, in, in geek nomenclature is essentially, um, something you pay for that's a matter of conspicuous consumption, right? You know, the, um, you want people to know that you can afford something. Um, I still think the weirdest Veblen good, um, ever 
are solid gold collar stays, which I've seen advertised in places, um, or 24 karat gold plated collar stays. Um, you know, for you kid, you slacker kids today in your, um, in your track suits or whatever the hell you wear, uh, you know, dress shirts, uh, that aren't button down collars, which are technically the only ones you're supposed to wear with a suit. You're not supposed to have a button down collar with a suit. Not that I give a rat's ass, but, um, uh, you usually get these little plastic stays that you put in the collar to keep it from like curling up and being straight and, and crisp. And the idea of spending, you know, I can't remember how much it costs. It was like a hundred bucks, 200 bucks for gold collar stays. I was like, who are you trying to impress? Um, I think by definition, you got to start giving more money to charity. If you're buying gold collar stays, I get gold watches, you know, whatever. But anyway, a Veblen good is just simply shown off. Essentially. It's to let people know that you have, um, all this money. And I always remember how I had a professor once who explained how Porsche came out with a low end affordable Porsche that was, you know, for the common man, a Porsche for the common man kind of thing. And it did terribly. Because people wanted the, you know, people, the people who bought Porsches wanted to signal that they could afford an expensive Porsche. They weren't buying the brand name. They were buying the price tag in effect. And the same professor, um, actually, I, now that I remember it, it was actually when I was on the board of trustees in my college and she was talking about college tuition pricing. And um, I, I think this is still true, but I know it was true that uh, was it Bennington College most expensive liberal arts college in America. And, um, um, or at least it was. And whenever some school raised its prices above Bennington's, um, Bennington would then, uh, outbid them because it made absolutely no sense for their brand, for them to be the second most expensive liberal arts college in America. There are certain sort of like, you know, rich doctors and hedge fund guys out there who like to brag on the golf course about, of course, their kid had to pick the most expensive college in America. It's just less fun to brag about the second most expensive college in America. And the point is, is that because of the Veblen good aspect of conspicuous consumption, Bennington actually made more money raising its price to be the most expensive because that was part of their brand. And I think that there's, on the left, there's, and I, when I mean left, I don't necessarily mean Bernie Sanders. I mean, Bernie Sanders doesn't think there should be more than a half dozen kinds of deodorant, which is a good, classic, meaty, old school Marxist kind of thing, which I kind of half admire. Um, but among the sort of cultural elite, I think that the, the, there's a Venn diagram to be done overlapping between, um, Veblen as conspicuous consumption and virtue signaling. And if you can afford to pay crazy amounts of money to show that you are right with climate change and all that kind of stuff, um, I strongly suspect that for some group of people, it is less about fighting climate change and more about uh, buying respect and virtue signaling by conspicuous consumption. And, um, and the test for all of this, of course, is always like, except for private jet travel, you know, um, 
I've yet to see someone who could afford private jet travel, who used private jets in the past, give it up. And maybe someone can point someone to me. But that is like the one place where private jet travel is just too awesome and it's too um, uh, cool to, uh, you know, to give up just in the name of climate change. And also the alternative, I mean, you're not really doing that much. I guess you're helping the environment more for sure if you flow, flew commercial. But if you're going to give up jet travel at all, um, the cost of doing that is just way too high. But anyway, I, I'm so far afield. Um, there are a lot of different kinds of privilege around. And I think everybody understands there's privilege that comes with wealth. So we don't really need to um, dive deep into it. Um, and I've already conceded that there's such a such thing as like white privilege. I'll also concede, you know, there's such a thing as, as, as male privilege. Again, I think that is wildly exaggerated and, um, um, and it's not nearly as explanatory as people think it is, but it exists. The, the point I want to make is that if you only focus on certain kinds of privilege, um, you're your explanation for the world and for reality is just going to be wrong. And, you know, I, I, I know I keep going back to Latinx, but I think it was somebody in the comments at the dispatch who first put this in my head. Um, you know, imagine the privilege it takes from to, to think that you can redo someone else's language because you do not like how gendered it is. That is, you know, there's a lot of privilege going on there. Um, you know, there's an enormous amount of privilege in being able to say that you are, um, you are the, 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 you know, the morally righteous one for denying, you know, that, that sex differences are real. You know, if you're the one who's saying, you know, someone should be canceled or fired. I just had a friend who basically lost his job because he refused to, um, um, you know, play some of these games. I don't want to get him in trouble, any more trouble than he's in. He's, you know, he, he can reveal this when he wants to reveal it, but it just got out of my head. You know, um, you know, if you think you have the authority to redefine concepts, going back, you know, thousands of years or that are deeply enshrined in settled science and medical textbooks. And that you think because of your passions or your sense of justice, that you have the right to assign villain status and bigot status to people who disagree with you. That's an enormous kind of privilege as well. Um, and we see this in, you know, so much of the sort of woke culture like who the hell is ibram kendi to tell me who is a racist and who's not a racist i mean why why do i def why do we defer this authority to him and that's not even just who is a racist and who's not a racist it's you know who is sufficiently on the side of anti-racism to be um let off the hook um and given a pass um um and not required to you know uh go to more struggle sessions I didn't give him this power. I didn't vote on that. Um, and, and I'm not saying he has legal formalized power, but this is my point is that society creates all of these sort of, you know, different forms of status and privilege 
that are contesting against each other, that are vying for intellectual or moral dominance in the, in, in the sort of marketplace of ideas. And one of the great privileges that the left has had for about a century now is this idea that somehow they have a monopoly on political virtue, that the more you disagree with them, the more um, villainous or disordered or, um, or immoral you are. And I talked about this a bit with, with Sally about, you know, the way um, uh, Theodore Adorno, one of these Frankfurt School Marxists, not Franklin School Marxists, as, as Mark Levin calls them, um, you know, how they made, the, you know, how Adorno sort of made this argument where basically he created this total bogus thing called the, the F scale, which F is short for fascism. And basically he, he assigned values to the, the, essentially the psychological test or checklist that basically said the further you moved away from his commitments to communism, the closer you were to fascism. And I've written a ton about this. Maybe one of these days I'll read from my underrated book, Tyranny Clichés, for one of the inter, um, one of the supplemental things for the remnant. But like, um, the there's a long, rich history of of left wing progressive, uh, you know, communist sympathizing academics who have basically um, poison, you know, spent an enormous amount of time arguing that the further away you move from their priorities, um, the more proof it was, was that not just that you were wrong. I have, you know, of course, socialists and communists are going to think classical liberals and conservatives are wrong. That's totally fair in a democracy. You can have those arguments, but I don't just mean like wrong as in having incorrect opinions. I mean, they would argue that they were um, mentally disordered, that they were um, um, illegitimate, that they were not committed, that they were not to be recognized as part of the democratic order. Um, and some cases that these were people who needed to be cured. Um, and we saw a, a, a spike in this stuff in the early 2000s where people would argue that, you know, you know, the Republican brain is just different, which is so profoundly illiberal. Um, you know, if you, if you'd written a book saying, well, you know, um, you shouldn't listen to black people or Jewish people or Asian people in political debates because their brains are just different. You would be pelted from the public stage. Um, but this was like a, you know, a major argument. And and I spent a lot of time on this stuff because I, you know, it, it spiked when I was working on liberal fascism. And the thing is, is like, um, it's just nonsense because, uh, the, the idea that being a conservative, like there's, let's put it this way. There's a conservative psycho, there is a natural, there's a conservative temperament, right? There are just people who are born averse to change. I think that's totally fair. Right. And I shouldn't say born, uh, but you know, that from an early age, whether it's, it's nature or nurture or the interplay or both fine, whatever, but they're just, there are lots of adults 
who are hostile towards sweeping change and radical change or new things. I mean, and, um, and I think there are even more people who, and I, let me put it this way. I think there are people at one end of the spectrum who are very much like that. And there are other people at the other end of the spectrum who just love everything new. And then there are like most of us people who like new fun things in one realm of life and don't like change in another realm of life. And so we're all, you know, a lot of these differences run through the human heart. You know, I used to give this whole spiel about how we're all a little Lockean, we're all a little Rousseauian, because these are things that run straight through the human heart. We all want to be, you know, adventure-seeking individuals who um, leap into the fray and attach glory to ourselves and, and get recognition for our own personal accomplishments. And we all want to be part of a group. We all want to be part of a tribe. We all want to be part of a community. We all want to be in it together. Those are natural things that say that speak to differences in ideological points of view, but they also speak to conflicts within every human soul because that's just who, how we're wired. So anyway, I think there is a, such a thing as a conservative temperament, but if you have a conservative temperament and you are in a country or a society or in some other milieu, um, to use a extend your pinky word, um, that is based upon a radical form of politics or an authoritarian form of politics or a left-wing form of politics, whatever you know, labels you want to put on it, the content of your conservatism will be diametrically opposed to the content of my conservatism or Charlie Cook's conservatism, right? You know, we consider ourselves conservators, you know, of a radical liberal tradition. You know, the miracle, as I put it in Suicide of the West. And, you know, and I keep, I always bring up Samuel Huntington's conservatism as an ideology. Um, it's a fantastic essay uh, from, I want to say 56, something like that. And, you know, what a conservative, what a, someone with a conservative temperament wants to conserve in, um, you know, monarchical France in 1800 is, or I should say, 1780. Um, it's just very, very different than what, um, someone with a conservative temperament wants to conserve around the same time in the United States. And, you know, you know, to my dad's dismay, the, the, the most orthodox, um, bitter members of the Russian Politburo were always called the conservatives by the Western press. And the Western press had a point problem was the limitations of the language, but like, the conservatives in the Politburo had the exact opposite positions of the conservatives in the U S Congress, because what the conservatives in the Politburo were trying to conserve was the most doctrinaire fundamentalist form of, you know, Marxism and, or Leninism or Stalinism or whatever. And, um, and that's not what Barry Goldwater or, you know, Robert Taft believed and, um, or Ronald Reagan later, you know, and, um, so there is this, you know, there is a conservative temperament and, um, but so, so much of the psychological literature that, you know, I was trying to get at with this Adorno stuff with Sally and she wrote a great piece about all this. It turned, you know, it, it, it did not recognize that being right wing in America in 1950, 
1930 or 1940 or being conservative, forget right wing, that gets a little more complicated. Being conservative in mid-century United States um, did not mean that you had the, that you could be lumped in with um, uh, conservatives in Nazi Germany, right? Because you just, you believe different things. You want to conserve different things. And in fact, the, I mean, I don't want to get deep in the weeds on this, talk about conservatives in Nazi Germany is a bit of a misnomer. You know, if, if we're going to stick with the convention, the conventional conventions, fine, let's call Nazis right wing, but the Nazis weren't conservative in the sense that American conservatives were, and they weren't even conservative in the sense that German conservatives were, um, you know, the, the German conservatives in the 1910s and 1920s, you know, were essentially monarchists. Um, you know, or you could argue some of them were classical liberals, but not a lot of them. Um, but they were monarchists and Bismarckians. And that's not what Hitler was. Hitler was a radical. And um, anyway, so this is all just, just to say that, you know, in like the 2000s, when they started coming out with these, you know, things about the Republican brain, um, I, I probably can go back and find some of the stuff that I wrote about it back in the time. You know, they were lumping... Mussolini and Hitler with Rush Limbaugh and Ronald Reagan. And it was just such a hot mess. And it was all based on these insane studies. Um, I mean, there's really dumb, small studies where like, you know, they would get college students in a lab and they would ask them to watch a screen and hit an M key every time they saw an M across the screen. And then, but if they saw a W across the screen, they were supposed to do something else. And by the discomfort that they had with this, you know, exercise, they concluded that some of these people were conservative and then, you know, uh, you know, dot, 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 yada, 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 uh, Reagan and Hitler were just alike. I mean, it was all so stupid. And, um, and this is why I like, you know, the Jonathan Haidt and Paul Bloom stuff, because it, it doesn't try to shoehorn all of this into ideological approaches. Um, yeah, there are, there are implications for ideological stuff, um, but human nature is not something that is just unique to, you know, one set of ideological combatants. We all have human nature because we're all humans, you know, except maybe for Ramesh because he's Vulcan. Um, so where was I going? Oh, yeah. So just simply this notion of having a, a moral you know, a, a monopoly on political virtue and a notion that they um, get to beat the drum that everybody has to pull their oars to about what defines decency and, and, um, and human, you know, and, and humanity. And um, that's an enormous privilege. And I, and, and, you know, in the sense that fish don't know they're wet, I think a lot of the people who employ that privilege and benefit from that privilege don't realize how privileged they are. You know, they can destroy people's lives because they, um, you know, they disagree with them about some minor, um, you know, bit of word magic about what, you know, what adjective or pronoun you prefer or all that kind of stuff. People, you know, you know, Lord knows I've written and said a lot about the problems of the right these days, but very few people on the right have anything approaching that kind of power in the culture, you know, to, to sort of, um, anathematize people, 
um, you know, they can anathematize people in their own ranks. And, you know, a lot of them have done that to me and that makes me sad, but today's another day. Um, but, uh, they, you know, there are very few people on the, like, look, if Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson and, and Laura Ingram and, um, uh, I don't know, Ben Shapiro, you know, probably a little unfair to put Ben in with those guys, but you get the point. If the entire pantheon of super popular right-wing pundits decided to declare, um, you know, somebody was bad, the only people who are listening are, um, the only people who sort of act on that are the sort of shock troops of the very online right-wing world. Um, it doesn't have the, anything near the cultural power that when, you know, the, the, the folks behind the New York Times, the Oscars, um, you know, the MacArthur Genius Grants, all that kind of stuff, um, the, the Pulitzers, you know, they get to set the rules about who is and who isn't um, enlightened, anointed, righteous, you know, I mean, Ibram Kendi is getting $45,000 um, for an hour long speech. Um, you know, good for him, I guess. But like, uh, that's, you know, that's a, that's a sign of the cultural power that, that he has got. And, um, I just think that there's an enormous amount of, um, there are all, all sorts of other kinds of privilege. And, and that's what offended me so much about the stuff that Sally was talking about is that, um, this, I, you know, there's an enormous amount of privilege that lets you say to somebody, I know, I know what all of your problems are and they really have nothing to do with what you think they are or what your wants and desires are or any of your own experiences, because you are essentially an indistinguishable part of some larger demographic blob that I've already made all my judgments about. And so you are a victim of white supremacy, or you are a culprit and a villain because of your, your white supremacy. And you must do what I say you should do. Um, because I've got you pegged because I, all I need to know about you is essentially the color of your skin or your gender or whatever. Um, that's how Kings think, you know, like, when the king is hearing redress from, you know, petitions from peasants, they're all the same thing. You know, they're in peasants are interchangeable minds of a king. If you think that, you know, everything that you need to know about somebody because of the color of their skin or their social economic status, um, um, or just their income or whatever. Um, and you get to act on it without being called on it. Uh, that's a, um, an enormous privilege that most of us, don't have and that none of us should have. And that's, you know, that was sort of getting at my point about, you know, psychiatry and psychology, um, whatever their limitations. And I certainly think there are limitations. Um, if you don't actually deal with the person, if you don't actually deal with the reality of the patient in front of you, it's just flatly, it's unethical. It's malpractice. It's evil. You know, if you're starting to bring in your, you know, you know, and we can see this in other eras. You know, it's it's so funny how this stuff, you know, as I always keep writing about, you know, these, you know, the specifics are all new, but the dynamics are all old. Um, we've seen these kinds of things count countless times before, you know. And so, you know, there were eras when, um, 
you know, sort of Marxism in, was heavily influencing things like psychiatry and psychology. And, you know, we now look back on it and think, gosh, that was so ideological. That was crazy. Um, but when you're in the middle of one of these moral panics and you're a participant in it rather than outside the fishbowl looking in, you don't see it that way. You, th you think that, okay, we've now found the Rosetta stone that explains all the problems in the universe, including the problems with this guy who comes into my office and, and, and has anxiety and you have all the ready-made answers before the person opens their mouth. Now, of course I'm, I am wildly oversimplifying the reality of what we're talking about here, but you get the point. The, the idea of bringing in sweeping social ideological movements into the examination room is, is illiberal. We'll just leave it there. So where else talk about? Oh, well, you know, since we're talking about privilege, I um love this story. I don't know how much it matters to people outside DC, but in DC there's a um a bookstore called Politics and Prose. And it's a good bookstore. It's an independent bookstore. It's um it's your classic um you know liberal bookstore. Um they do all sorts of events there. Um, it's invariably um, sort of, you know, liberal events, you know, progressive events. Um, and again, it's a good bookstore. I like bookstores. You know, I'm sure they don't carry any of my books. So that's fine. Whatever. Um, I like bookstores, um, even liberal bookstores. I visit them in cute little towns that, you know, I was in Bozeman and go into bookstores or if you're in Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard, any of those you know, she-she high-end places, they have wonderful little bookstores and they're all, you know, liberal, and, uh, whatever. That's okay. They're readers and um, I like reading. So, but the thing is that they're, they're kind of smug um, at politics and prose and, uh, and, and they're smug about their liberalism. And so I just thought it was like me and my friends were just whole laughing hilariously uh, politics and, Pro politics and prose has hired, I think Jones day to fight, uh, their staff's effort to unionize. And, um, I just think it's hilarious. Um, and it's actually, it's a really good, another example of privilege where, you know, when non liberal or leftist institutions fight unionization, Everyone gets to beat up on them. And this is proof of, you know, the evils of corporate this and capitalism that. But when, you know, left-wing institutions refuse to unionize or fight unionization, um, it's just, it, it's, it just doesn't get the attention or the oxygen it would, you know, and the best example of this was, what's his name? Um, uh, Michael Moore, you know, who was just, a vicious, nasty, horrible boss to his own people, according to a, you know, a bunch of pieces, but because he was on the right side of the sort of left-wing popular front stuff, it just didn't get the attention that it would, even though he was like literally making movies like, you know, that, uh, Roger and me and that kind of stuff about how terrible it was about the decline of unionized labor in the United States. And he was refusing to let and firing people and doing all sorts of stuff to prevent his own company from unionizing. And, um, uh, I just, I love it. You know, 
I don't think I, I have, I personally have no problem unless you're like running a dangerous coal mine or a, um, uh, you know, some terrible meat packing plant with low safety standards and that kind of stuff. I got zero problem with uh, owners of a business trying to keep it from the staff from unionizing zero. I mean, literally zero problem with it. Um, I also have close to zero problem with the staff trying to unionize, although, you know, they better not try to dispatch. No, I don't know. Um, they can give it a try. But my point is, is like, uh, if you try to, you know, private sector unions, I've come around on to a certain extent. I still think there's a lot of corruption in them and there's, you know, depending on the union and their history is, you know, comp complicated, but the, there's a kind of a libertarian case for, for unionization in the sense that you have a property right in your own power. You have a civil right, a constitutional right to association and, and to making contracts. And if you and your coworkers can successfully petition your boss to say, we're going to collectively bargain for a better this or whatever. I have got no problem with you trying to do that. I also have no problem with the owner saying no. Um, and you're all fired. You know, I mean, that doesn't bother me either. Uh, it's, you know, this is business 101 as far as I'm concerned. So I got no problem with the, you know, the, all the grad student staffers at, at, at politics and prose trying to unionize. And I have no problem in principle with the owners being against it. I just think it's hilarious that the owners would, um, not be on this side of the argument were it any other business in America, but their own. Um, at least that's how I see it. So, uh, what else are we at? Uh, 53 minutes. So, um, I'll, what else, what else, what else? Oh, like, well, you know, I mean, just one last thing on this privilege thing is the Harvard, um, just announced that they're not going to do SATs, do standardized tests and all that. And it's of a piece with, um, uh, this larger movement to get rid of objective, get rid of objective metrics, um, of performance and ability. Um, so that it makes it easier to have proportional representation in your workforce or in your student population and all that kind of stuff. And, um, uh, my friend Jay Nordlinger, um, on the Harvard story, he quoted, it was on Twitter. He quoted, um, um, Abby Thernstrom, who was a wonderful lady, um, about how the war on standardized tests is basically a dagger at the heart of Asian Americans. And, um, I'm not going to get deep in the weeds about, you know, the discrimination against Asian Americans in higher education. I feel like I talk about it every week, but there's a certain privilege that comes with being able to say that you are a champion of people of color, that you are a foe of white supremacy. And then, and that all of your admission policies are in service to that when you have special consideration for non-whites and then you throw it all away when it comes to Asians and, um, and you think you are exempt from charges of bigotry or hypocrisy for it. You know, like if you could just get your partisan team membership out of it for a second and think about that, where you get to call people who disagree with 
the admissions policies for African-Americans and for Hispanics in terms of preferential policies. Um, and you think about all of their arguments about how, um, you know, how important diversity is about how important, um, about how pernicious white supremacy is and the legacy of this and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and then when they're confronted with non-whites, um, doing everything that is required of them to get into their school and uh they choose not to let them in in large numbers because um um Asians do too well uh there's a certain amount there's an amazing amount of privilege that lets you say all that with a straight face and not get called to the carpet for it anyway um and what was I going to oh so yeah uh, as some of you may have seen, you know, we brought it out from behind the pay gate. Uh, I broke my sort of promise not to get deep into the Fox stuff, but I, I just, I think the Mark Meadows text stuff was just so egregious and so infuriating. Um, and the defenses from Laura and, um, and Sean were so ridiculous and, I went after Laura's defenses pretty hard in the piece. You can check it out. I did not expect it to get the play that it did. Um, uh, but I didn't get into like Sean stuff and I thought it was really interesting. So like one of my um, problems with how the opinion side of Fox um, is so dominant at Fox, um, particularly the primetime guys is that, they've weirdly internalized Donald Trump's sense of grievance and victimhood, right? Donald Trump was the president of the United States, um, most powerful guy in the world. And yet he was always casting himself as a victim. You know, he, he even said that he was a whiner and he whines and whines until he wins. Um, you know, he would always say that, you know, rich hunt and that, that, that um, no president had ever been treated as unfairly as he had and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, and he had some, he had some, uh, facts on his side for some specific complaints, but overall he was just a whiny bitch about all of it. And, um, and, and has a, and, and had a whole martyr complex and so do, you know, Tucker and Laura and, 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 and Sean in a lot of ways. I mean, Laura's a little better about this. She tries to be a little sunnier. I don't think she pulls it off all that well, but like, uh, Sean was talking about how, uh, you know, the, the real scandal here is, or one of the real scandals here was how his right to privacy was invaded, that, you know, it was outrageous that his texts to Mark Meadows were just spilled out into the public. And, you know, he was whining at the end of his shows, just handing it off to Laura about how, um, you know, he can't use social media anymore and he can't, you know, and he can't do stuff on Facebook and it sucks. And, yeah. and I don't, I mean, I flatly, I kind of, I don't even get the argument, um, you know, about the right to privacy part of it. I mean, uh, part of discovery about a riot, you know, to ransack the Capitol. Um, and you were texting the, um, White House chief of staff to get them to stop. And the thing that makes you mad is that people found out that you did that. I mean, so like, 
first of all, I mean, I mean, put the right to privacy thing about it. It's like the up. Well, now don't put it aside. Think about it this way. He's angry that his private communications made it out into public, which at least at some level, and certainly from the, his tone, makes it sound like he's embarrassed or upset that people found out that he was doing the right thing that he was actually trying to get the president of the United States to call off the mob. And, you know, look, I get it. If, if, if his text showed him, you know, um, you know, talking dirty or sending junk texts or talking about how, you know, he likes to dress up like a clown and, um, um, uh, and, you know, date other clowns or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to keep this at least PG. Um, I can get, you know, like privacy if it was not germane or anything like that, but like this thing is totally germane. And, um, or I can totally see him being upset if like his text said, you know, tell the president to hang tough. They're almost through the perimeter. They're going to get Pelosi. You know, they're going to hang Pence. I can totally see why Sean would be upset about that got out into the public. But he's upset that the public found out that he was trying to get Trump to stop the mob. That's some weird shit. And um, um, if it's actually what he's upset about, I mean, I think I think both he and Laura spent the day after those texts were revealed greaseboarding the the least implausible line of defense that they could mutter because you know the whole point of being a Trumpist type. You have to go on offense and you have to be a counter puncher and, um, and, or you have to complain that everything's unfair to you. And so they, you know, they, they, I think they, they <clears throat> war gamed out all the possible responses. And it tells you something given how utterly terrible their responses were, that these were the best ones they could come up with. Um, I mean, Laura's a bunch of media types helped Laura have, get her fig leaf together on this because they claimed that the story, you know, I think it was Brian Stelter and someone from the post, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. There were people who claimed that Laura was a hypocrite because of what, um, she said that night on January 6th and, um, and, and, anyway, I got into the G file, but the, the short of it is, you know, there were inconsistencies between her texts to Meadows and what she said that night when she was texting Meadows, she wasn't saying, you know, go find the, um, Antifa inter, you know, uh, you know, interlopers, um, and infiltrators and get them to stop egging on the mob. She wasn't saying, you know, get the deep state to stop doing this. She was saying, get Donald Trump to stop doing this. And by the time she was on TV, she was talking about, you know, she was raising red herrings about Antifa and she was uh, exonerating Trump from responsibility for the thing. Um, but she did condemn the violence. She condemned the violence because she thought it made her and Trump look bad. Not, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, this is wrong in and of itself stuff. There was a lot of this is counterproductive for the cause and the movement stuff which is not a first order complaint about rioters um, looking to kidnap um, or kill politicians in the performance of their constitutional duties. Um, 
but anyway, how did I get on this? Oh, just anyway, so I wrote about it. I don't plan on like, you know, dwelling on all this stuff all the time, but at the same time, you know, part of the problem with Vox is that it is deeply enmeshed in party politics. It is essentially a fun, it is essentially a proxy of the Republican party an adjunct to the Republican party. It was certainly the primetime crowd were, um, de facto agents of the presidents of the United States, not de jure, but de facto. I mean, uh, Sean Hannity is in co- was in constant contact with the president of the United States. Um, they all, all three were, and, um, uh, and, and were, as were countless other daytime types and, um, um, and they did his bidding or they did what they thought would be his bidding. And, um, and to say that, uh, that's, you know, to say that I, you know, I left a very lucrative contract behind so I could speak honestly about all this stuff and then to not speak honestly about it when the news requires just seems like a really weird thing to do. So I, I will bring it up from time to time, but I'm not going to go nuts with all of it. Um, um, oh, some free uh, promotional stuff that I wanted to do. First of all, um, my friend, Matt Meehan, uh, um, he asked if he could take out an ad a long time ago on the remnant, um, to promote his new children's book. And I kind of dropped it amidst all of the startup craziness and other stuff that has been going on. And I didn't follow up with him and I apologized for that. Um, and he's written, um, a couple, uh, children's books that are sort of traditional values, uh, you know, Christian conservative friendly, but just sort of just generally, uh, um, non political, um, wholesome stuff. And the latest one is the handsome little signet. And if you're looking for a stocking stuffer for a grandkid or something like that, you might want to check it out. Um, also, uh, um, I had a long talk with Robert Doerr, who's the president of the American enterprise Institute and, 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 and therefore, um, the guy with the key fob that activates my pain collar. Um, and he was asking me for advice about how to get, um, better circulation for AI today, which is AI's, um, uh, you know, daily digest of what our scholars are writing, um, across a whole bunch of places from Michael Strain and Bloom, Michael Strain and Ramesh Panuru and Bloomberg to all sorts of people in national review to stuff in the dispatch. Um, New York times op-ed page, Washington post op-ed page, obviously wall street journal op-ed page. And it's great content. And, you know, as a lot of, you know, a lot of my guests are my colleagues on from the American enterprise Institute. So if you're, um, uh, interested in what people from, you know, uh, Strain and Klon Kitchen and Adam White, Matt Continetti, Yuval Levin. Um, if you want to stay abreast of what they're doing and what they're saying, um, uh, head on over to AI.org and, and sign up for AI today. Um, and I got to say, look, I'm very proud of AI. I have make no bones about it. Um, I saw the other day that the, the new president of Heritage tweeted that he was in, you know, lockstep style. That's not a quote, but that was the gist of it. Lockstep solidarity with Mark Meadows. And he said, as the president of heritage, we stand with him. And 
look, he's a new guy. I hear he's a nice guy. Um, I'm not trying to be wildly critical. I think it was just an incredible mistake to, um, you know, it's one thing if you're the head of a think tank and you say, or a conservative think tank and you say, you know, we stand for, um, intellectual freedom or we stand for free speech or we stand for property rights. You know, these are like broad, serious principles. Why the head of heritage, which still has a lot of good people at it, um, would say we stand with this guy who was part of an attempted coup, um, in a deeply, and even if you don't believe Mark Meadows was in an attempt, was part of an attempted coup. Um, he's just a deeply polarized and partisan figure who stands for no serious conservative principle whatsoever. And, um, I just think it was a really bad misstep. And anyway, I I didn't mean to get into a thing about heritage. Um, my only point is that, you know, there are people at a, I have colleagues at AI, I disagree with and all that, but AI has maintained, um, its dedication to scholarship and intellectual integrity, um, better than an enormous number of other institutions, um, over the last, you know, five, 10 years. And, um, so I, I, you know, take that for what you will. If you think I'm just, you know, doing the bidding of the boss, that's fine. But, uh, um, I will never apologize for as long as AI stays the course, I will never apologize for sort of, um, um, promoting it and supporting it and recommending that others follow what our gang does. Um, and lastly, you know, there's this little outfit called the dispatch. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we try to spare our readers a lot of the promotional marketing stuff. You know, we don't inundate you. I mean, I know we sent out to people who are on the free list, a, um, promotion for giving gift subscriptions, but you know, you don't find pop-up ads. You don't, you know, we don't beat you up with this stuff. We really want to respect your time. And, um, but you know, it's a business. We are trying to do something really good and important, I think. And odds are that if you're a regular listener to this podcast or a regular reader of, of the dispatch, you're inclined to agree. And so it would be great for us. You know, the year is wrapping up. If you could, if you're not already, um, um, a member yourself, you know, you could, if, and if you're not a member yourself, you should give yourself, um, this holiday season, a little present, um, or ask a loved one to give you a present of a gift sub- subscription to the dispatch. But if you know somebody who, um, you think would like our stuff, um, who are philosophically aligned with what we're trying to do, um, um, or just intellectually curious about what we're trying to do, uh, you can go to thedispatch.com slash gift. That's thedispatch.com slash gift. Um, and you can get a one year for a hundred bucks or you can get one month for 10 bucks. Uh, either way you can cancel at any time. Um, the gift subscriptions are emailed directly to the recipient. Um, you can include a custom message. Um, um, you can do the email delivery f- for, you know, it can be scheduled for a specific date and time. So it can come like, you know, first thing Christmas morning or whenever. Um, and, uh, none of it will get stuck in, uh, the supply chain mess. Uh, it is impervious for the time being, at least to inflation. Um, and you know, again, we're not a 501c3 or anything like that. We're not asking for charity. We're just 
you know, but if you're on the bubble, we're asking for the benefit of the doubt that you give us a try and that you, you know, um, err on the side of, um, lending us a little support, um, not charity because you're going to get something that we think is of great value in return. Um, and you know, and that's the actual product, but also, you know, it's the, it's the cause that we're fighting for as well. And, um, and if you don't have anybody, um, you know, if, if that's not persuasive or whatever, um, if you just think about it as a gift to, to us at the dispatch that you're getting a gift subscription for somebody, um, that's how we take it. And, um, we're grateful for it. We're grateful to everybody out there. We've got an enormous amount of support and, and, and goodwill from a lot of wonderful people of late. I got an enormous amount of nasty hate mail and, and grief as well, but that's sort of, that seems to be the steady state sort of background radiation of my life. So that's okay. Um, I'm around for one more remnant next week, I believe. And then we're going to go dark for a bit. And, um, again, thank you to everybody out there. And, um, I really have no memory of what I talked about this morning. So let me know if it was hot garbage. And, uh, if anybody has ideas for a wonderful present for a, uh, 19 year old, I'm sorry, 18 year old daughter, uh, please drop me a line because I've done sun shopping, but I need to do a lot more. And, um, um, and time is running out. So with that, thanks again to everybody. Again, it is the dispatch.com gift. It's not super complicated. The dispatch.com gift. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for the support. Um, oh, there's someone who sent me a big ass bottle of Jameson's. Um, I forgot to write down the name. He's a friend of a friend of, of Ryan Brown, but thank you. It's been put to good use. It's not over. It's not done with yet, but thank you. Um, and while I will never refuse gifts of brown liquor, um, if you haven't already sent one or purchased one for me, uh, why don't you take a fraction of that money and buy a gift subscription to dispatch for somebody else. And with that, thanks so much to everyone. And I will see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.